Hey folks, it's Jeff Wenzel from the Woodshed Agency, and you are listening to my podcast called Successfully Funded. Here we go. Let's turn it up. Turn it up. Yeah! All right, crowdfunders, how is everybody doing? It's currently Thursday afternoon. Yep, and I'm recording this the day of Thursday because I had an interview canceled last night. That's all right, it happens. Uh, but I was lucky enough to actually get scheduled today. Michael Coy, it's, and I, I might be pronouncing that incorrectly. Michael, if you're listening, I apologize. I forgot to ask how to pronounce your last name, but it's C-O-E, and I don't know how to pronounce that. So that's what I went with. So hopefully it's close. But... Uh, so Michael is from uh, Gamelin, Gamelin Games, and his Kickstarter is Tiny Epic Galaxies Beyond the Black. And why did I have Michael on uh, this podcast? Well, uh, his, his uh, Kickstarter campaign had a $15,000 goal, and he's currently at $266,000 with 7,200 backers and 15 days to go. So successfully funded probably isn't the right way to describe his campaign. It is... Uh, you know, it is in space in terms of what he has accomplished here with his games. But uh, honestly, actually, I just finished up with my conversation with, with Michael, and it was it was so good. Um, the the reason I was also totally giddy to talk to Michael is that he you know, he's he's created eleven kickstarters. Um, you know, and he started with with board games and kickstarters uh, back in twenty ten. Uh, so I really. Really enjoyed this conversation because we got to deep dive so far into, um, you know, into the landscape and what we've seen change, what we've seen happen and not happen. And, and also, who better to talk to about what's going to happen with board games and Kickstarter, you know, in the next few years? So I asked him that question, too, and I got a great answer. But so that's going to be coming up later. So yesterday, uh, it was my wedding anniversary. Yeah, that's right. Uh, year four. We did it. My wife and I. Um, you know, we're, 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 we're there. It's happening, right? We did it. So, uh, had a nice day, you know, um, got my wife some flowers, went and looked at some jewelry, which I'm not hundred percent sure. I, I just, you know, my wife's pretty down to earth, you know, she's not really, uh, you know, into like expensive type of jewelry, thing like that. And I just, you know, I mean, I really thought about looking at like a nice bracelet for or something, but I just, you know, like, like spending $700 on a bracelet, it's very challenging for myself. So I did pull the trigger. I still might this weekend. I'm not 100% sure. Um, and I know she's not going to listen to this because she does not really uh, dig into my world too much. And she thinks I just send emails all day, but that's a whole other conversation. We'll get to that another day. But, uh, but yeah, four years. Uh, next year, uh, we have a we, we discussed the other day that well, hopefully we get to that. I'm sure we will. But uh, we were discussing that maybe next year around this time that we would actually uh, actually officially take a honeymoon, considering that we didn't do that because you know we had a kid before we got married. You know, we went we went the classy route uh, when it came to this world. So who knows? But big stuff around here. But um, so boy, over the last couple of days, here, I want to I want to recommend a, a book that that I have you know, gone back to multiple times in my life just to find uh, just a ton of, of, I don't even know if it's clarity or, or whatever it might be, but I just find um, um, a, a lot of satisfaction when I'm reading this. And the book is Andy Warhol from A to B and back again. And I, I spent some time last night rereading some chapters and there are just so many awesome, powerful quotes on it. And it's written in a way that it's almost like written from uh, Andy's subconscious to some degree. And, and it really is his thoughts. And uh, I just love it because there's so many things in there that just make just, you know, ridiculous sense, right? So, so one of them, and I posted this on my Facebook the other day. So if any of you follow me that are listening to this, uh, you, you've already seen this post. But, but he goes into this whole rant about, uh, ha- you know, that the president should have to uh, – th- that television a television crew should go to the White House – and the president should be video, you know, should be televised cleaning the toilets, and it should be, you know, completely, you know, presented as a as a uh, as a great job. Everybody should do this. Even the president does it, and that would change everybody's mindsets because here in America, we, you know, we won't do certain jobs, or, or that job is below us, or all these stupid stereotypical things, as opposed to just, you know, 
just, hey, you're working. You're making money, right? So uh, so it's a great quote. I, I put that up, like I said, on Facebook the other day. And it, it, like I said, if you have some time, I strongly recommend checking out um, uh, checking out that book. It's I just I totally, totally dig it. Um, so the other thing uh, that, that went down yesterday is uh, – so I, st- I started meeting with a therapist maybe a couple months ago, and I've never done that before. Um, and I'm getting, I think I'm getting more and more out of it than, than I thought I would at first. I definitely went in there with a more of a closed-off mind, thinking like, eh, I don't know if I need to do this, you know, type of thing. But um, it's really been pretty interesting. And yes, yesterday was, a, was a, a, I think, a healthy day in terms of just really reflecting on, on who I am am at my core and certain traits that I, I possess um, that, I, that I'm not aware of, you know, or that I'm trying to become more aware of so that I don't continue down some of these paths. And one of them is just the fact that I truly am and have been a people pleaser for, you know, I am. That's just at my core. And, and I do see how it's something that I have to start to tweak. But, but beyond that, the other thing that, that was interesting is I found out my therapist uh, is, <laughs> try, you know, does comedy, you know, and, and is, a, uh, still does some like freelance comedy writing for some shows and, uh, really had got into a, a, an interesting conversation where, uh, there was, it was almost like a buddy type of vibe, you know, of like, you gotta, you know, I, I recommended he check out the Mark Marin podcast cause you know, that's unbelievable. And they break down comedy and he's, yeah, I'm sure he'll go check it out, but it was definitely a good back and forth, and uh, I, I was happy to have that conversation uh, uh, with him. And and just so so intriguing to to when you get hear about these people and they they're doing things outside of what you think they would do. Like I just would have never thought in a million years that that this guy uh, does comedy, and I don't know why. You know, it's just me. You know, prejudging. You know, I don't know, just being whatever. And when he opened, when he said that, I was like. Well, what that kind of threw me off a little bit. I guess I just didn't put two and two together. I mean, he talked about being a, a teacher, you know, so I, I I got that, but not the uh, not the media thing. But all in all, I'm, I'm getting a lot out of it though, and I don't know how any, how many of out you go, and I don't even know. Maybe it's taboo to even talk about it. I know I feel weird sometimes talking about it, like oh, I don't want people to think that I'm nuts, you know. But it's been helpful, you know, to whatever and I go whatever three weeks or so it's not like it's every day or some you know every week I just every three weeks or so I just kind of go in there it's not, and it's not even just ranting it's just kind of just this is what's going on talking and, and hearing um somebody else's perspective on it and especially when you're in a situation where you've got you know small kids you know starting a business trying to you know clients my parents all you know business partners, you have all of these relationships and you're, and you're trying your best with everything and you're trying to never let anybody down and you're, you know, oh, oh, by the way, yeah, by me just saying that, that just tells you I'm a people pleaser. I never, I try to never let anybody down, which is, by the way, impossible. Somebody's always going to be mad or let down no matter what you do. Um, and then, and then really understanding where everybody else is coming from and that they have their ticks and their tricks and all the stuff that happens to them and, and they might be bringing that baggage to the table. So, all in all, it's been very helpful to just kind of filter through all of that stuff with somebody else uh, who, who they're listening and, and, and adding some advice here and there. So, so yeah, I feel pretty good about that. But, okay, I think I just ranted enough there. But, um, so, a couple of things. I'm going to keep saying this until everybody's doing it. Please, if you're into the podcast, make sure you're a subscriber on iTunes or you know you're, you you uh, you got the RSS feed. You sign up there through the website, the Woodshed.agency website. Uh, got to get in that new and noteworthy. That's our big that's our big task right now. Everybody, get in the new and noteworthy. Um, and then if you want to dive even more into crowdfunding, like you want to go past these conversations, uh, go to the website and join our community. Uh, we have a great Slack channel where we dive even deeper into. Um, you know, uh, podcasts you should listen to, books you should read, productivities, tools, growth hacks, social media tips, new trends. Um, we really, really get inside baseball in there. So all you got to do for that, put your email in and sign up. So please, if you dig this, if you're into crowdfunding, those are the two things that I need you to do for me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you're doing it already. So let's get to my conversation with Michael from Gameland Games 
tiny epic galaxies beyond the black go check it out if you're into board games this is a monster 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 kickstarter project so here we go It ain't the last you've seen of me, more like a return To the store for something you want with more money to burn I'm like the money you earn, but you don't want to even keep it Like when you asked your friend, can you keep a secret? Hello? Hello, is this Michael? Hey Jeff, yeah it is, how you doing? I'm doing real well, how are you? Great, can you hear me all right? You know, I hear you pretty good so far. So far. All right, good. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks for taking some time to uh, to join me for my podcast, man. Yeah, thanks for reaching out. I appreciate that. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, no problem. So when I stumbled upon your, uh, uh, your project, I, I got giddy to have a conversation with you because I think you are – you're in the elite of elite in terms of running oh, – I think you've had 11 campaigns you've ran so far. Um, you know, so you're clearly you've done this before, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and this yeah. one you are, uh, hitting an absolute home run here. So I'll give a, just some quick numbers that, you know, you had a $15,000 goal and you're at what? $266,000 on that goal. That's right. So you're doing pretty well at this. You know, it's been, it's been a, a, a climb too. So, um, you know, it's been a long road. I started several years ago uh-huh. and, are, so just for the record are we recording already Should, yeah this, no. yeah i jumped in yeah we jumped in we go for it you know why, awesome, waste, man. why waste any time you know great right <laughs> who needs a warning <laughs> yeah um <laughs> uh, you know so yeah, i started several years ago actually and i i first began uh i founded a company called crash games with a business partner and we ran uh, three kickstarters together and then we ended up going our own direction and I, and then I kind of went back to a company that I had started, but it was just kind of laying dormant, which is Gamelin Games. Hmm. Uh, and, and that and Gamelin is kind of the passion company. I created that first when I first got into the idea of uh, going into making games, which was in 2010. And then I started Gamelin Games in 2011 and then, and then didn't really get back to it until a little bit later in 2012 uh, after I had split from Crash Games. And then I've I've run eleven projects under Gamelin Games since then. So uh, it's you know, but it was interesting. It's been a, a snowball for sure, where it started off real small. None of my you know earlier projects were huge like this at all. They were they were just real small, but they funded. You know, I, I did what it took to get them funded, and then and then I went back and implemented what I learned and, and tried again, and it was a little bit better. And and then the next one was just a little bit better, right? And then right. it just now we're here, you know? right? So, so let's let's uh, let's dive into this campaign here in terms of tell me what this game is. Um, is this a kind of a, an improved version of an older game? Tell tell my audience a little bit about this game itself. Sure. So, Tiny Epic Galaxies Beyond the Black, which is what we have live on Kickstarter now, is an expansion to our uh, Smash It last year called Tiny Epic Galaxies. So. We opened up 2015 with Tiny Epic Galaxies, which is an engine-building space uh, game, and it's it's Tiny Epic. So that that's part of our, our series of games that we do that are small box uh, with big impact, and that's kind of what Tiny Epic is referring to. Is Tiny is kind of a reference to the footprint, but also a reference to the approachability of the game, how the rules are. It's, it's a, usually a short rule book with streamlined concepts. And then Epic is really the strategy that unfolds in the game. Uh, it's, it's certainly not uh, what you would think in a filler game, for instance. It definitely plays more like a medium-sized game, uh, but in a small box and, and plays usually 30 to 45 minutes. So that's part of that tiny part as well. But Tiny Epic Galaxies Beyond the Black, uh, it's, it, it depends on, you know, it, it requires that you have Tiny Epic Galaxies to play. So it's not a standalone expansion. It just uh, has added some new mechanics, some pressure luck stuff, some uh, all sorts of different stuff, some variable powers that come from pilots and some set collection, some really neat concepts that weren't uh, present in Tiny Epic Galaxies, the original. So we've, we've kind of come back around, and, and now people who have fallen in love with Tiny Epic Galaxies 
but have maybe played it a hundred times and, and are looking for something just a little kind of wanting to take it to the next level. That's what we have offered them now with tiny epic galaxies beyond the black. And, you know, and it's been a hit. People have really taken well to that. Yeah. It's, Obviously here, I think that would be the understatement of uh, 2016 possibly. They're clearly <laughs> digging it big time. So, so what's your background a little bit? How did you get into games? So I, I grew up as a Nintendo gamer in the 80s. You know, mm-hmm. I was born in 83 and, and, you know, I was playing Nintendo games all my life. And so, you know, and, and board games at a young age as well, but not, not real, uh, certainly not like the Euro games, nothing that came from, from, Germany or, or Europe, you know, I was playing all the American games, right? Like Monopoly or Sorry or things sure, like that. Right, right. Um, which got me, which which kind of I, I left behind as I started to grow up a little bit and, and get into more uh, complicated games like Dungeons and Dragons and playing some other kinds of games. You know, I grew up with video games more so because they, I felt like the games that were offered here in, in the U S were just kind of, I mean, you're not really playing the game as much as the game is playing you. There's just mm-hmm. so much luck in, in a lot of these games. And so I didn't actually grow up or I didn't go into, uh, being a board game maker from being a board game hobbyist. Uh, though I was certainly a gamer, but I didn't play Carcassonne or settlers of Catan. I, I really didn't even know that the, uh, that there was such a huge hobby world for, really thought-provoking games until uh, pretty much the same time that I started making board games uh, as an adult. And so I do come from a bit of an interesting place because of that. And I think that that actually plays into why I like small, quick, approachable games is because as a video gamer, I'm used to just picking up the controller and getting right into the game. And right. I don't have to read a textbook. And that's just, that's never been something that I've had a lot of fun doing is, is heavy reading. And yeah. so I, I just like to be able to get right into it. And I like instant gratification in my games. And I like to, I like to be in and out and done uh, as quick as possible, really, with these games. But I, but I don't want them to be uh, a waste of time. I want it to still be stimulating and to still provide meaningful decisions. And that's what tiny Epic is all about. Uh, and I think it reflects a lot of my background as a video gamer instead of a board gamer. So, you, you know, it's interesting how much you just spoke to me on this. So just give you a little quick background on me is I, I'm not a big gamer, but as I've been kind of doing crowdfunding consulting for the last few years, and I added a business partner named Paul Luan, and he's a huge board gamer. He's ran, three or four successful campaigns. and he, so, so seeing his mind work on this, and the only thing that him and I disagree on is length of time. Like I can never comprehend playing a game, anything. I can't comprehend anything for five to six hours, right? Like life, I don't know how people do it. And so I love how you're talking about this sort of like compact, boom, I could sit down for 40, 50 minutes and, you know, play a cool game. You know, I think I come from that same background. You know, I was born in 79. So when you're talking about that Mario Brothers, it's like, like, that's what gaming is in my brain, you know? Like, hey, I, I played three levels of Mario Brothers 3, whatever, you know? Um, so, yeah. so it's intriguing that you're kind of, kind of adding that sort of element in this. I, I, think, I think you are. I think you're right. You're coming at this at a, probably with a different set of eyes, you know? You know, and that wasn't always the case. When I first got into, when I first had the idea, okay, I want to make board games, you know, which was, which at the time, again, th- this market wasn't, what it is now there yeah. wasn't people putting board games on kickstarter and making hundreds of thousands of dollars and then i was like hey i want a piece of that right. that wasn't the case at all when i first started designing my first board game in 2010 kickstarter was brand new and i think at that time the most that a board game had funded was like 20 or thirty thousand. yeah and i didn't even know about kickstarter uh or crowdfunding when i when i first had the idea that i was going to do something in this business, I thought I was going to have to go the traditional route of designing a game and then trying to find a gatekeeper, convince him that that there's something here, and hopefully he'll pick it up. And so my first game that I designed uh, is very telling of my background because it's a roll and move. And so <laughs> that, you know, it's interesting because when I when I took pen to paper and said I'm gonna make a board game, I may I, I thought 
of board games as a different gaming engine altogether than video games. And so I didn't even try to capture what I love in video games uh, in the board game space. I instead went to what I was used to in board games, which was roll and move and, and draw a card and that kind of stuff. Right. And so, and that's what I designed and I spent a year designing it. And I, 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 at that time, uh, I didn't have a lot of money. I was a server at a restaurant. My background is in customer service <laughs> and, and food service. And so you know, my, my wife and I, we were just working weekend to weekend, not even paycheck to paycheck, yeah. you know? Hey, I've lived and, that world. I have 10 years of restaurant experience behind me. <laughs> 86, <laughs> yeah. 86, you know, we get 86 that right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <that's> 86. <laughs> uh, you know, I learned a lot in, in that though, in, in terms of customer service. And I've applied a lot of that in my methodology of, uh, communicating to backers and how I, how I take the approach of, uh, my communication with backers and, and my transparency with backers and stuff. I, I would attribute a lot of that to my years in, in restaurant service and whatnot. But, but when I, when I made this big game, it was, it was just a really huge game called Lords, Ladies and Lizards. And it, I had a lot of fun. All my, my buddies liked it and stuff, but it, it just, it had traits of old American style games, you know, not, these newer uh, Euro style games and certainly not any video game aspects to it. But uh, I, I took it to Gen Con in 2011. I literally drained my bank account. My wife and I flew out there and we didn't have any kids or anything at that time, but, but we just totally went down. I think we had like 200 bucks in the bank when, after we bought our plane tickets and we flew out there and we pitched Lords, ladies and lizards to a, a ton of different publishers. Uh, we ended up seeing, I think we had like seven or eight meetings and, Every one of them turned it down, and for good reason, you know. And it wasn't just a case of them being like, "Oh well, you know, we're just not interested," or, or you know, they they actually took the time to hear me out. They took the time to digest what I was saying, and then gave me relevant feedback. And and so I appreciated that. Uh, but I remember the last day of Gen Con, just sitting on the big uh, slab of cement outside the the convention hall, looking up at this gorgeous church building and thinking to myself and talking with my wife and just being like, you know, it's, you know, oh, well, right. Like it didn't work out, but, but maybe we can just find a way to make this game ourselves. Maybe, right. maybe there's something that we don't have to go through the gatekeeper. And, and so we, we did a little bit more research and we discovered Kickstarter. And, and then at, around that time I met uh, who became my business partner for crash games and he had some interest in, in making games as well. And he was running a retail store at that time and, and hadn't done anything in, in gaming either, but, but we both had a similar passion. So we kind of learned Kickstarter together and kind of cut our teeth on Kickstarter together. And I went back to the drawing board and I designed a small game. And, and the reason being is because at the time we were like, okay, let's go to Kickstarter, but let's not do it with this behemoth of a game you have right. because we'd have to set the funding goal at, at a ridiculous level and games at that time were not funding high. Yeah. So in order to, uh, have a game that we thought would actually reach its funding goal, I, I went back and I designed a smaller abstract strategy game called rise. And so it's actually my first published design, uh, self published through crash games. Hmm. And it did 17,500 or so on Kickstarter. And then, uh, my business partner had a game design idea, so we went with his idea for the next one, and, and that funded. And then I designed a third, a second game, and and that funded. But again, just at like twenty thousand. But that was mind blowing at the time. I yeah. remember, I remember when we launched Rise on Kickstarter, we were hung on every single backer. We're like, oh my gosh, we got <laughs> ten backers today. Can you right. believe it? Ten people bought our game today, and that was so mind blowing. Uh, and, and I've not lost a lot of that. I still, I still am just baffled. Every time I launch a Kickstarter, I'm just really grateful of the backers showing up and showing their support again and again and again. Uh, and it's changed my life in, in, in my family in significant ways, Kickstarter. Um, but, you know, it's just been a, an evolution. It's been a process of slowly growing and finding okay, people like these small games, you know, it's, I don't have to make big games. People actually enjoy the small ones if I, so long as they have meaningful decisions. And, mm -hmm. and then when I really started, when it really clicked for me that I wanted to try to capture video game like qualities in my board game was with, uh, my second design dungeon heroes. And it's, and it's, 
it's kind of abstracty in a way, but it's really a dungeon crawl game. It's a tile placing game that's asymmetrical. And, and I, when I went into that game, uh, designing it, I had design goals in mind to achieve kind of a, uh, kind of a, a look of like old Zelda style flooring, at least how like the grids of the Zelda maps were, but also I wanted to capture some chess element and, uh, different things like that. And so, it, but it ended up doing pretty good. And, and then, uh, after I had designed a few games and published them through Kickstarter, really to establish that as a publisher, I could take concept to shelf. And, and once I felt like that had been demonstrated, I reached out uh, to social media and, you know, and on Twitter specifically and, and said, Hey, you know, Gamelin games is, accepting game submissions at this time uh if you're interested shoot us a, an email here's our here's our criteria that we're looking for and i got a submission from uh scott alms for a game called tiny epic planets hmm. and i had recognized scott's name because i had been doing some research in the business and and he had just finished up another publication and so i took his submission quite seriously and i, I printed it out right away and, and my wife and i played it that night and it blew our minds because it was everything we were looking for. It was short and fast and easy to understand uh, and compelling with meaningful decisions. So I was like, wow, this, this, is, this is what it's all about for me. This kind of game is something that I could get into. Because I just, again, from being a video gamer, I wasn't getting into these bigger box games. Right. But this little one really did something for me. But uh, I have a background really, uh, it, you know, my particular fancy is in, is in fantasy and medieval kind of themes. So I went back to Scott and I said, hey, look, you really got something here, dude. This game is really compelling and it's, and it's really quick and I love that. But I would rather it be Tiny Epic Kingdoms, for instance. I'd rather be sending orcs uh, out against the humans <laughs> than just some random alien faction that I've never heard of versus another alien faction that I've never heard of. And, you know, I have to commend Scott for his passion because his very next email to me, which was the next day, uh, he, it wasn't a response of, yeah, you know, I think we can do that. Maybe, maybe we can do that. You know, instead it was, here's the new files. Everything's already been converted to tiny epic kingdoms. Now, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, there, there we go. There's somebody with a, a, a sense of drive and passion that matches myself. Yeah. And this is somebody I could work with. So I ended up signing the game and it, it tiny epic kingdoms. And, and it was our first real smash hit, uh, as gambling games on Kickstarter. We launched that one in January of 2014 and it did $286,000 or something. Wow. And it just, yeah. And I mean, nothing else, none of my previous projects even compared. And so, it really blew my mind. And I was like, Scott, dude, we really have something here. And I don't think it's the kingdoms. I think it's the tiny epic. And so Scott and I uh, got to work on, on developing a whole series uh, in which Scott is the designer of the games and I'm the developer of the, and the publisher of the games. And, and now uh, we have several entries into the series and, and we just continue to, to produce tiny epic games and, and people keep showing up and saying that, heck yeah, tiny epic is the real deal. And that's what we all have been looking for. You know, it's really worked out. So. That's sweet. What, what do you find is like the core trait to be a game designer? Like, or, you know, what's the core or like, what's, what do you share with Scott in terms of, you know, similarities in terms of just mental makeup? Like, like it, what I, what I stand back and I love about the sort of game is, is just imagining how you're taking people through, journeys you know not 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 people playing a game just you're taking a a, a um a, a character through journeys and you're using language to push people around so what is the trait that you guys see amongst people who make games what is that you know a desire to create uh, a desire to express like you said a story mm -hmm. or an idea through uh creation and, and, and making something from nothing and, and being able to, uh, show pieces of yourself, pieces of your personality, uh, unique things that, that make you who you are creatively and being able to put that out into the world and see how people react to that. I think that's a desire that, that Scott and I both share. And, 
you know, Scott's an engineer by, by trade. He, uh, is a full-time engineer for products for a, a railroad company. And so he, he has a natural knack for, uh, product engineering and, and concept engineering. And, and that's something that I've, uh, got a passion for as well. And so we make a good team that way that he's able to write a very sound engine. Uh, and then I'm able to take a lot of my background as a video gamer, his, his background as a board gamer. So he has the hobby, the board game hobbyist element of these games. And then I bring in a non board gamer approach and I'm like, nah, this part's too heavy or this part's uh, just, you know, not, not clicking for me as mm-hmm. because I just want it more simple and more straightforward. And, and so is it, is a pair, uh, me being kind of an outsider and him being an insider makes a, a good match. Yeah. How about, you know, the artwork for, for, I mean, everything I'm seeing online here, I mean, the artwork just looks fantastic. How do you guys go through that process? So that's been a, a growing and developing process as well. In the very beginning when I had no money at all, uh, I couldn't hire an artist. I couldn't hire a graphic designer. I couldn't hire anybody. I did my own art, and I'm mm. certainly not an artist. <laughs> and but I mean, if you go back and you look at Rise, I did the illustrations, if you'd even call it that. But the graphic design and all of that, I did. I put that whole package together myself. Again, just to demonstrate the ability to take concept to shelf. Right. But, um, and th- then as I evolved and stuff, I looked into how can I find illustrators that are willing to uh, maybe take some money on the back end since I don't have any money to give them right now. And so, you know, part of that is, is being creative. Part of that is, uh, you know, uh, I think deviant art is a good resource uh, where I would go on there and I would find art artists who had styles that I liked and I would send an email to several artists. So for instance, with uh, one of my earlier publications from Game and Games, a game called Fantasy Frontier, I pitched or, you know, I, I presented my proposal for an artist mainly with being paid on the back end of the Kickstarter and only if the Kickstarter succeeded. Mm-hmm. So again, I had to find artists that were willing to to do illustrations under the idea that if the Kickstarter failed, I wouldn't have any money for you. Right. And, I mean, I sent that email out to numerous, I mean, probably about, some are probably about 10, 10 to 12 different illustrators and of which only three got back, um, to me and, and of which only one actually said that, that my, uh, proposal was acceptable. So, uh, <laughs> but luckily as, as luck has it sometimes that one was my most preferred choice of the 12 I had sent to actually. So I was really tickled pink that, yeah. that she had back to me. She's a, her name is Naomi Robinson and she's the illustrator of Tiny Epic Galaxies Beyond the Black. Oh, awesome. And, and she's fantastic. So I've continued to work with her now, time and time again. Um, and similarly, I had found Bill Bricker by by just setting up a, a, a convention meeting with him. I would met him at Origins. He illustrated Tiny Epic Kingdoms, and we used him for Tiny Epic Defenders and Tiny Epic Kingdoms expansion called Tiny Epic Kingdoms Heroes Call. Uh, and then as I've been able to uh, accumulate more resources through these projects, I'm now able to reach out to, uh, artists and present them a more traditional proposal. And therefore, uh, the art has, has gotten a little bit better cause I've, I've been able to, you know, pay them a little bit better right, and, right. and have them put more time into it, you know? And so it's made a difference. So when you're, when you're starting one of these games and you're thinking about, <clears throat> you know, kind of your, all your kind of cost is going to go into it. And, and when I'm looking at like this sort of game here and you've got a lot of small things, right. That you have to be printed, the cards or the ships, you know, how do you, how do you start that process in terms of reaching out to, I guess, printing companies, manufacturers, how do you source all of these things that you know, that, that you eventually need and how much does cost play into that where you're like, man, we can't do whatever the the ships are too much you know we can't do them in this one how do you factor all that stuff together so with the time with the with having a series of games that all fit in the same box and all kind of have the same price point um it's made that process a lot easier for Mm -hmm. me and i and that's just part of learning because in the beginning i was making small games medium games long games fat games right So, so it's like i had to kind of start over with that process for each game. But oh, yeah. now that I've settled into the tiny Epic series, uh, and not by accident, 
it's we've kept that consistent so that that the that that process is easier for us now but it takes research and stuff so i you know i'd recommend people who are kind of looking for uh, solutions to all those questions to just spend some time online and, and googling it and reading forums on board game geek because there's a lot of resources out there and but i mean in the beginning it was a matter of picking up a board game and and comparing it to another board game and saying i like how thick this box is versus how thin this box is and i like these pieces and and this package overall is is good who manufactured this not who published it but who manufactured this and you can research them on uh, you know and find out who the manufacturers are and then i reached out to that manufacturer and and said hey i i like your product i've seen it and i would be interested in you making my game and making samples for me so i can see and so it's kind of that process of just finding other games that you like already and reaching out to the manufacturer of that game, maybe reach out to the illustrator of that game, maybe reach out to the graphic designer of that game, right? So it's uh, it's just that kind of um, uh, research, really, of, of the industry and, and finding your preferences and then reaching out to those people and seeing if they'll uh, extend their services to you. So if you had to play one of your games, considering that there's a healthy amount of them, which would be the game that you would play all the time if you had to, if there was only one game. Tiny Epic Quest. It's launching on Kickstarter October 28th, actually. Oh. It's it's my favorite in the Tiny Epic series. But had you asked me this last year, I would have said Tiny Epic Galaxies. Right. And last the year before, I would have said Tiny Epic Kingdoms. Um, but I would not have been disingenuous or, or, you know, about any of that. I I truly love the, the most recent games I'm working on, and that's why they're, they're taking my time to be developed right now is because... Uh, I feel like they offer things that I've not seen in games before and, and even in my own games. And, uh, you know, and again, because I'm not a big hobbyist, I don't spend a lot of time playing a bunch of other games. I just spend a lot of time trying to refine my games and, and making sure that they are, are, are a, a authentic crafted product and not just something, uh, put together, you know, formulaically I, I want it to be the real deal i want people to really see the craftsmanship that goes into these and that takes time and there's no substitute for that yep so i play my games a lot <laughs> that's good that's good so they're so they're, they're not boring you that's good they're, they're good games awesome so let, let's dive in a little bit into the this actual campaign so you know obviously you've had success with a couple other ones prior to this so maybe what what was some of the strategies that it sounds like in the 2014 um uh uh, campaign that went gangbusters, and then you have this one going. What are you doing behind the scenes? What What is your main focus and strategy around, I guess, marketing uh, before you launch your Kickstarter? Um, so I take a uh, I take the approach of the more you give it away, the more it comes back to you. And so, and by that, I, I I'll I'll kind of talk a little bit about the value of having a small game because. You know, a lot of people come to me and they say, hey, I've got this gigantic game. Please give me some advice for Kickstarter. And I say, make that your 10th game. That's my advice. <laughs> Start small. You don't have to throw that game away. You don't have to shelf that game. But it does, But why make it your first, especially if it's your, your heart and soul, especially if that game is just everything to you? Why make it your first? You're inevitable to it's good. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to do some things wrong. Why, why make all those mistakes on your favorite that, that you, you know, like, but why start so big? Because if you have a big game, then mistakes are big, you yeah, know, right. They're costly, right? If you have a small game and there's a mistake, well, it's typically a small mistake. It scales with the size of your game and the amount of money that you need. So I started with, with real small games, but the other part that that's really helpful with having a small game is it doesn't use a lot of printer ink for your fans to print out. And so, and it doesn't require that they find a bunch of bits, maybe just a few. And so that is, uh, the approach I took and back in it really shortly before, uh, 2014's tiny Epic kingdoms. Um, at that time there was quite a discussion among, uh, publishers that were using Kickstarter if it were smart to release a free print and play version of your game 
prior to launching the Kickstarter because nobody was doing it at that time. And, and really the word on the street was, uh, no, that that's probably not a smart idea. Um, and if you just give the game away for free and especially if it's a small game, then why would anybody back it? Mm -hmm. Uh, but I, I took a different approach and I tried it out and I said, well, maybe that's not the case. Maybe, maybe if I offer a free print and play, uh, and I, I kind of borrowed this from shareware computer games. Again, a, again, a little bit of a reference to my video game and computer game background. But I remember playing Diablo back when I was young, and my buddy had it, and I couldn't afford it. But luckily, his disc had a shareware version. So so long as he came over and downloaded it on my computer, I could play the first dungeon. Hmm. And, and, and that was awesome, but I, that's where I would get locked out. So I did the same kind of thing with board games, where I said, look, Tiny Epic Kingdoms, is going to potentially come with a whole bunch of factions, elves and orcs and, and, and lizard folk and centaurs and all sorts of crazy things. But the free print-and-play version is just like a shareware version. It just comes with four factions and four maps. And, the, and the, the finished product ended up coming with 16 factions and 16 maps after stretch goals were reached and, and whatnot. Right. Um, and the print-and-play version, I didn't offer any of the fancy art. So it was just generic icons... Uh, and a real simplified, uh, uh, the game itself is the same, but it's just that not all the factions, so not a lot of replayability and not a lot of variability, but the engine was there. Yeah. So people could download it, print it out because again, it was small, so it didn't use up a lot of ink and they could play it. And I felt like if they could do that and see how great the game's engine was, I just was, I was really in love with the heart of this game and I just, I needed to get that out there. So it really, the focus was exposure. And if I, if I could just get people to play this game and see that the engine is the real deal, then how, then if they fell in love with it, they're, they're bound to want a fully illustrated version with a bunch more factions. They're just going to, you're going to desire that. And that, and that came true. I was one of the first publishers that started offering free print and plays. And I've done it ever since all of our tiny Epic games have a free print and play version that comes out prior to the Kickstarter. Um, and that also that that's that it's beneficial in a lot of ways, all the ways that I just said. Yeah. But also in uh, in that the backers trust your product and your game more because they're able to play it or they're able to see that other people are playing it and they're able to see that you're transparent about it and you've got nothing to hide and you're not afraid to get your game out there. Uh, and that really helps them when they're deciding if they're going to take a chance on it. Right. That's a, that's a really strong strategy about getting people out there, and it, it makes total sense in my head. That's I, whenever I'm consulting a client, I'm always trying to find a way to get, you know, either through a raffle or something, somehow get a version of your product in their hands. You know, let them sit with it, let them go talk about it, let them play with it. You know, do whatever with it, and then then give them the full full full. Uh, full experience somewhere down the road. It's a great strategy. So outside of that though, what are you doing like social media wise? Are you doing a lot of Facebook ads? Is it word of mouth? I'm sure your mailing list at this point has to be phenomenal, you know, with, with the, the, the track record you've been putting in. You know, I'll tell you, uh, Jeff, I, I, I'm the layman, man. I came, I didn't have any social media before I got into doing this. And so I don't have a social media background. I, I didn't even have a Twitter account or a Facebook account. I created all of that at the same time that I started publishing games and at the same time that I created my company. So I had to grow it from zero. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the, the strategy there is just being consistent and uh, posting relevant posts and not spamming too much and... Uh, <laughs> But just a slow growth, but it's all mainly driven through Kickstarter. And I've been driving uh, my social media growth through stretch goals and stuff. So I'll say, hey, look, I can add another card to the game if I could just get another 500 followers. And, you know, 14 projects later, uh, you know, I'm sitting on, on 7,500 followers on Twitter and, and over 10,000 Facebook likes. And so now when I post things on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, uh, it, it it's actually reaching a crowd now. It actually gets out to people and there's, there's a few people now, but it's all through slow growth. And so again, it's, 
people, I, I just would, it would be too bad for people to get immobilized because their social media is so small on their first project and for them to think that that's uh, a big problem. Really, if you're in it just to make one game right now and just make quick cash and then you're out, then maybe that's a bit of a problem. But if you're in it for the long run and you see yourself desiring to be in this industry for the next few decades, then it's okay that, that you have zero Twitter followers on your first project and start slow and embrace the process and embrace the fact that it's a long journey. And through your Kickstarter, through your updates, th uh, through answering comments, you can demonstrate to people that you're very tangible and that you're very involved and that you're right there and you want to help and you want to answer questions and stuff. And that kind of behavior gets them, uh, to be more likely to follow you on Facebook or like you on Facebook and follow you on Twitter because they know that, that if they have a question, you're there to help them. And, and so it, but it's a slow process and you just build it and build it and build it over time. It, it's, I, I really love what you just said about using stretch goals to push not only just backers or, or more things there, but in, in, in terms of using that for even social media, uh, I find stretch goals to be one of the most important things. And I love how, I love how gamers do it. I guess, when I've had a couple of these kind of conversations with board gamers, and I love how stretch goals, I mean, are just, I don't know if they're the backbone, but they're just such an important factor uh, in the campaigns. They're just, just really, really well done. And you, and I mean, you've got to be, you're an expert on them, you know. I, I, I just love them, man. Well-planned well stretch goals can make all the difference because yeah. at the end of the day, in order to get somebody to take time out of their day to open up another page on their browser to go and, and post a link to your game, there, there needs to be some sort of incentive for that to act, to make it actually happen. Yeah. And that incentive comes in the form of stretch goals. And so, you know, that's how you can get your backer community to share your project, uh, you know, by, by planning and creating compelling stretch goals. Yeah. You're getting ready. To, it looks like in this one, you're getting ready to, uh, to, to have your, what your 275, $5,000 one, the scorecard of five tokens. That's a huge well, stretch goal. You, yeah, well, I'll tell you what's interesting about that stretch goal is that when I launched this project just a week ago, that was not planned. Right. And when I was speaking with my manufacturer for the game, getting a quote on the game, they're like, okay, do you anticipate anything else changing? And I'm like, no, I don't. This is what I, this is what I think is going to be. And, and sure enough, a week later, I'm like, well, things are changing because <laughs> I listen to the backers and, and I'm, you know, I listen to good ideas, right? It's like we, as a team, Game and Games approaches these games with a very clear uh, set of design goals and kind of a core that we're not going to venture away from. So people always ask, well, how do you know what ideas are good and what ideas are bad? And how do you know which ones to take? And it's like, look, we have a very good idea of the game that we want to put out there. And so it's very easy to see when ideas don't match up with our goals. But every once in a while, and uh, and I'll say that every project that I've launched on Kickstarter has been improved by a suggestion from a backer. So every once in a while, there are great ideas, and and why not embrace them? Why why be so finished when right. you go to Kickstarter to miss out on one of the great aspects of Kickstarter and the Kickstarter community, and that is the creative involvement of many minds that that love games and think like you do. And so it'd be remiss to, to be locked out of that. So I am always open to suggestions. And I, it doesn't matter if they're a good suggestion or a bad suggestion. I'm totally open to suggestions. And then on our end, we'll find out which ones are the gems, the diamonds, and the rough. And every one of our games improves from the, process, the creative process that is launching on Kickstarter and listening to your backers. So that stretch goal you mentioned, that's a backer-suggested stretch goal that uh, was actually a, a, a previous... A uh, piece of content that was only available in a print and play, a premium print and play version that includes full art, but it's a paid for product uh, on our Tiny Epic Galaxies project last year. But the backers were printing it out and they saw that it had a functional benefit. And so on this project, they asked uh, if, if we'd be willing to print that out and have it be a part of the game and actually manufacture it. And you know what? It, it, wasn't going to be too expensive for us and it, you know, it was going to make sense at that stretch goal level. So we said, heck yeah, let's do it. And, and again, that makes such a big difference because now that's a bit of a sense of ownership that, sure. that the backer community has. And that makes them much more interested in sharing your project and just 
in, but not just sharing your project, but actually playing the game when it arrives at their house because yeah. they've contributed in some way. Yeah, they're, they're invested. Their ideas are invested into it. You know, of course they're going to play it even more. You know, this, this yeah. came, they're going to have yeah that ownership feeling. So, so where do you think? Considering that you've seen board games basically kind of explode on Kickstarter over the last five six years, where do you see board games, Kickstarter, crowdfunding? What what would what what do you see on the horizons in the next four or five years? Where do you th- where do you think where do you think it's going to go? I see a lot more growth. Uh, I see it going up and up and up. Right now, um, things are just booming, and but you're already seeing that the backer community is becoming more discerning. So a few years ago, when I first started, it was. Is this a bubble? Is Kickstarter going to go away? Is crowdfunding going to go away? Is board games going to go away? Are people going to continue to buy these products uh, year after year for decades? While I can't conclusively say that, yes, they are, uh, I can certainly say that Kickstarter has not, and and the board game uh, uh, community and hobby has not demonstrated that it has uh, the traits or is going in the direction of a bubble bursting. Instead, it's it, it's evolved, but it's it's evolving like a real marketplace evolves, which is the backers become more discerning. The creators are therefore having to produce higher quality products, uh, and that's what we're seeing. And that is a very healthy market. So I think this is just going up. So, considering maybe here's a little productivity thing: how do you deal with seven thousand backers? You know, uh, all the comments. All of the updates, you know, you have to be getting inundated. What have you learned from project to project on how to just handle data overload? Uh, or have you? <laughs> maybe, maybe you have it. <laughs> you know, you, you, have to, you have to just do it. You just have to be dedicated to it. You, just, you can't let it overwhelm you. You can't open up your inbox and see 50 emails or 100 emails and just be overwhelmed you just take it one step at a time right the great wall of china was built one brick at a time uh and you know somebody who you know i'm married and i have a child and uh so in the beginning uh i had to lean on on my wife for a lot of the other tasks and stuff that needs to get done around the house and just in life in general so that i could answer these these emails right and so and then now as we've uh, become more successful i've been able to hire an employee who is a, a good friend of mine and, and works as a tremendous sales agent for our company, but he also does a lot of the customer service and, and answering the emails. And so in, a, you know, in addition to just doing it and just actually just getting into it and doing it, I would say that it's, you gotta, you know, you gotta have a good support team and you gotta be able to lean on some help. Cool. So, all right, I got one more question here. So you got 15 days to go. What keep, what, what strategy or anything do you come do you do you even think about coming up with something you know where does your mind go when you have squashed your goal like you have your 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 stretch goal is going to probably be hit sooner than later your last one there and you got two more weeks to go what what what's going through your mind is it just right into the sunset or do you keep trying to push or change or keep exploring new ideas okay so uh, it is i do uh, my my mentality, my thought process does change a little bit. I, I don't have to be as focused on exposure anymore. And now I can change my focus to get making sure that the ducks are in order so that this game can be delivered properly and on time. And so that's a, a fortunate thing. I don't have to start thinking about, I'm not restricted to thinking about that after the project's over. I'm able to start getting some things in motion mid-project because I know the funds are going to be there. So I can start making some promises. I can start uh, getting some other uh, you know, companies that I work with and stuff that, that make the game or do the fulfillment. I can start getting them moving in a certain direction because I know the funds are going to be there. So that allows me to start putting my ducks in order. So it does change a little bit. That's not to say that I, I completely drop uh, my marketing efforts and, and things of that nature. I mean, here we are chatting right now, and right. this is this is an attempt to get the word out there. So, I mean, I'm still very focused on that, but I don't, that doesn't have to be my sole focus. Now I can change and I can start focusing on what's going to happen after the project. And I can start doing some of those things a bit earlier so that I can make sure to get this game out to people in a reasonable amount of time and done properly. So, so this would just pop my head here too. Do you have retail like traditional retail in your business plans at all? 
Uh, absolutely. And that has grown. In the beginning, that was uh, the hardest part. And in, in, in the beginning, it was pretty much just uh, 99% of my company's revenue was from Kickstarter. And, and now that's evolved. Um, I would still say that over 70% of the company's revenue is from Kickstarter. But we've grown as our games have done well in the retail space. And, and the reason they have taken traction and done well in the retail space is because they're, they're authentic games. They're genuinely created games that, that have thoughtful engines that, that are the math works and the game works. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that is the investment in the long run. So I know a lot of, uh, I know it can be tempting to cut corners and shave a little shave expense on your game where people will see the model as well. I've got to get the lowest possible price per unit so that my margin can be the highest it can be. And maybe that means going with a 1.5 millimeter box instead of a two millimeter box. And maybe that means going with a 260 GSM thickness for your cardstock instead of a 310 thickness. Okay. And, and these little things like that. But all you're doing is you're, you're taking the foundation right out from underneath your feet because you're cutting yourself short on your own product. And in the end that it's those, it's the, it's the great product that feels great, plays great, looks great. That resonates with people in the retail space. And, uh, you can get, what I'm saying is you can get away with a few things online, but you can't get away with those same things when the game is in people's hands and it's in the retail store. And so the more you're dedicated to providing and and putting out a great product, the better it's going to resonate with people when it's in their hands, when it's on that retail shelf. And again, it's a slow build. So in the beginning, you're probably not going to have a lot of penetration in retail. But so long as you're putting out great product, then it'll eventually grow. And now it's it's grown and we have a really uh, good retail presence at this point. And we're continuing to grow that. And we're definitely staying conscious about um, how our games a, a look and appeal because we're trying to reach uh, new markets in retail. We're, we're wanting to expand beyond just hobby stores and, and move into a bit more of a trade market, uh, maybe even one day a big mass market. But doing that, you have to reach different buyers. And, yeah. and sometimes that takes different art styles uh, and whatnot. So we're always exploring how we can expand that um, while not uh, abandoning the hobbyists that have come to love our, our game so much. Cool. Well, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to have this conversation. It was unbelievable. And, and uh, I don't get to talk to experts like you very often in terms of the amount of campaigns you've ran, uh, you, you know, how you've taken a product from a, an idea all the way to retail. Just an awesome, awesome conversation. I, I can't thank you enough, man. Well, thanks for your time, Jeff. I appreciate you uh, reaching out to me, and uh, it's my pleasure. It really is. Awesome. Thanks so much. Can you keep a secret? A secret? It's a hip-hop collaboration, not exaggeration. Now it lasts you tasting everything we got. Ain't no wasting for your tricky thoughts that keep on bouncing in your dome. Like the leaky faucet that keep on dripping in your home. It ain't the last you've seen of me, more like a return to the store for something you want with more money to burn. I'm like the money you earn, but you don't want to even keep it. Like when you asked your friend, can you keep a secret? I'm out of sight nationwide, so you know I'm pacing high with my thoughts in the sky. And it's though I'm chasing wide, cause it's mind over matter. My thoughts running scatter like a one-way mirror, impossible to shatter. I'll take you home with me, I'll give you something to see. Possibility that you and I can make it be Cause I use my mind and not a key to lock it up securely